1: Everyone talks about these, oh, you know, we want to be a $100 million company or we want to, you know, you have to get to scale. Small is a great destination. And sometimes being able to think about what that means, you know, to your company in terms of that what, what growth will do to change kind of who you are as a company, as a brand, kind of all of those elements to it. Who, what is going to change to, you know, your team and your clients and all the rest that maybe being a massive company is not right for you that maybe being a smaller kind of boutique company that can focus on the kind of clients that bring you joy is a great destination.
0: You are hearing the voice of Common SKU CEO, Catherine Graham, recorded live at SKU Camp in Palm Springs, California, where Catherine presented the topic, Strategies for Scaling. From planning, goal setting, structuring your team, key metrics for growth, and numerous other tips, Catherine shared from her years of experience as a distributor and also as someone who speaks to hundreds of other distributors about growth. Many people know Catherine, but for new listeners, Catherine Graham is the president of Wrightsleeve Sleeve and CEO of Commonskew. Right Sleeve has received numerous industry awards, including ASI Distributor Entrepreneur of the Year, PPAI Web Award, and Counselor's Best Places to Work. Catherine has been named PPB's best boss, an ASI rising star, and this year listed as one of the 50 most influential executives in the $23 billion promotional products industry by ASI's The Counselor magazine. Right Sleeve received the Dale Small Business Excellence Award in 2009 for its technological innovations, the foundation of which became Common SKU in 2011. Over the next several weeks, we will be releasing all of the audio recorded at our inaugural SKU Camp event. Since many of you are now deep into business planning for the upcoming year, we hope this series of presentations helps you and your team as you plan and grow. You can download the PDF from Catherine's presentation at community.commonskew.com. Just look for the Skewcast episode entitled Strategies for Scaling. And now from SKU Camp, Catherine Graham.
1: All right. So this is, you know, the post lunch session, which can sometimes uh, be a little challenging. So I'm going to make you guys drink from a fire hose for the next hour. So hope that you are well hydrated and well fueled. I'm going to share my presentation after the fact. So there's I, I've I've written it in such a way that is more kind of bullet point oriented so that you can take it home and think about it and digest. So don't try and kind of frantically write down stuff that's up there during this. I want you thinking and I'm taking kind of notes more in the context as opposed to kind of capturing the details. So we will share it, share it afterwards. A little bit of framework around our context around kind of where this came from, this, this topic. So Bobby and I have been working over the past few months on a, um, a series on the blog called The Path to 10 Million. And through our own experiences of running and growing distributorships and from literally the hundreds of conversations that I have had over the past five years in talking to companies of the challenges they've been through, the stages they've gone through. We kind of identified that there were really five key stages to growth. So the first of which is market validation. So when you're first starting your business, it's you're getting out there, and you're selling something for the first time, and you're seeing if anyone's gonna buy what it is that you are selling. And when you successfully pass through that stage, you go through to repetitive proof. So they bought it once. Was that a fluke? Are they gonna buy it again? And being able to get that uh, more consistent client interaction and Um, Revenue going so that you can actually start to build a business on that the third piece tended to be around investment So you've now reached a point where you start to get going You've got some good sales going But you have to be able to think about how it is that you're going to take your business to that next level and that often requires investment Whether it's financial whether it's people um, whether it's infrastructure to be able to get to that next stage Which takes you to scaling so that fourth piece around um, being able to really kind of take things to the next level and the fifth one being around organizational specialization. So how do you look at specialization of rules, specialization of industry, of expertise? Of you know, are you going to be a company store um, distributor? Or are you going to be a, um, a supplier that specializes in you know one particular kind of product category? So really thinking about you know how it is that you take growth to that next level. So we wrote a whole series kind of around this, and in order to be able to kind of help guide people through that process. Now you guys have successfully been through one or steps one and two, you, otherwise you wouldn't be here in the first place. So some of you may be at various stages around kind of three, four, five or maybe struggling with all of the above. And that's really the what I hear kind of time and again in the conversations that I have every day with both our, our customers and prospects that we're talking to that those latter three are the areas that they're really struggling with. So that was kind of the, the basis of where this session came from. So what I'm gonna to do today is I'm gonna walk you through a framework. So this is kind of a five-step framework around how does that you think about scaling your business. And to the word kind of business, company, team, I'm gonna use those words, but please think about those words interchangeably with what is specific to your role. So that might be you know a portfolio, that might be a department, it might be a territory, you know, whatever it is that your specific role is within your organization, please use those words interchangeably because I'm gonna use kind of company and team and all that throughout, um, throughout the presentation. So the framework again uh, has got five stages to it. First is evaluating the current state of what you where you're at kind of right now within your business. The second piece is planning. The third is building the dream team. The fourth is creating key metrics for growth, and the last piece is actually making it happen. So this is the framework we're going to walk through today. Again, if anyone was not in here for the first kind of minute, I'm going to share this deck afterwards. Please don't try and take all the notes, or if we're going to be drinking from a fire hose for the next hour. So, everyone ready? Are you excited? All right, let's do it. For evaluating the current state. First thing about this is looking at your team. Who do you have on your team now? Or if it's you, kind of looking at within yourself of, you know, what does your role encompass? And I'm talking about everything that each person on your in your organization does. So not just as simple as saying, you know, They do sales. I guess looking at what else falls on their plate on a day-to-day basis that they currently have to do and thinking about the entire aspect of what it is their role encompasses. What are their strengths and weaknesses? Jim Collins talks a lot about getting the people in the right seats on the bus in order to be able to make everything kind of go smoothly and for everyone to be pulling in the same direction. So if you do you know, a really honest evaluation of the people on your team or yourself and thinking about the alignment of what it is that they do well and wh- what seat you have them sitting in on that bus. Are they in the right seat? Could they be in a better seat? Are there areas of, that they're not so solid at that maybe you should be trying to take off their plate or maybe you should be trying to kind of shift them in a different direction? That really taking that critical evaluation of kind of whether they are in the right seat on the bus and, and are you playing to their strengths. And the last piece around this is that what's their potential? So in looking at those strengths and weaknesses, where can that person grow within your organization? So can they grow into a different functional role? Can you develop them into being more senior, and what it is they're already doing? Could they take on, do they have management skills? You know, what are those hidden talents that are sitting right underneath you that you might not be aware of within your team that you can be really looking to grow and develop? So seek that out, kind of look beyond kind of what it is that your team members are doing now, and think about where you can take them kind of within um, the future. So those three things comprise kind of that evaluation of your current team. The actual way in which you do this, you could literally you know, put an org chart down and write down the responsibilities and strengths and weaknesses within that or do it you know, in an Excel file. Like Whatever the mechanism is, it's simply kind of getting down these thoughts and being able to see it kind of laid out in a way that hopefully might give you some insights that you don't have now to your current team. Step two is looking at your current systems and processes. So lay out everything kind of from beginning to end in terms of what is involved in your business. So from managing the customer you know, through to coming up with you know, the ideation phase, uh, managing orders, production, you know, marketing, all the different elements that go into that from you know, beginning to end. And when you lay that out in detail and you think about kind of every touch point that has to happen along the way, where are your bottlenecks? So that system and process might be working well for you now, but if you start putting pressure and stress on it, you start putting more transactions through, more volume through. Where is it going to hit the bottlenecks? Where are those points that are going to start to be kind of that limiting reagent within that ex- existing process that you're going to have to address before you put more volume through? Or you know what, what's not working so well in this moment in time now? You know what is it that can you, you can streamline before you even start to add kind of more volume into that? So can you change process, do you have to add people, do you need better systems? Like, What is it that is not working well or is not going to work well in the future that you can address now? So what this might look like in terms of how you actually evaluate this is that laying everything out kind of along this timeline. So whatever those different steps are along the way for your organization, um, your team, your business, lay it all out kind of in this, this kind of methodical way and be writing underneath each step of the way who does what. What are the systems that we use kind of for each step of this? Um, what are the um, roles and responsibilities of, kind of people, people that are handling those different um, sections? Where are the handoffs that have to happen along the way? Where does information have to get communicated from you know, one person to the next within the company in order to be able to make those things happen? And circle within those where the bottlenecks are gonna be. And think about how can I address those stages, either now or before um, we start kind of putting more pressure on this and more volume through. So it's literally just a process flow. So those two pieces are really gonna give you kind of that picture of what it it is that you have to work with now from a foundational perspective before you then start kind of layering growth on top of it. So team, systems, and process. So the next stage along this way is planning. So this is thinking about actual how, how it is that you get from kind of where you are right now to where you wanna be. So here's where I'm gonna ask you to be kind of open and vulnerable. In thinking about a detailed roadmap, so looking at kind of a a plan kind of laid out with specific steps around how you're gonna get there. How many of you have a five-year detailed roadmap? Hands up. How many of you have have a three-year detailed roadmap? Two years. One year. How many feel like you're flying by the seat of your pants? Yes. (laughs) Thank you for being willing to be honest. <laughs> Where the thinking kind of came from on this in the in the first place is that years and years ago with uh, with right sleeve, we literally would kind of start at the beginning of the year and be like, well, you know, we think we want to sell this and like. Let's hope we get there. And <laughs> there's a whole lot of finger crossing to see, you know, if we would get there at the end. And if we didn't reach our goals at the end, like, oh, we well, you know we'll try harder next time. And that's fine when you're, you know, a two, three, four, five-person company, but that's not so fine when all of a sudden you're 20 and bigger than that. Because you can't afford to make mistakes in terms of missing your goals by that much once you're at that, that scale and size. There's too much burn from a cash flow perspective, there's too much risk in terms of on um, the people that you're employing, and too many kind of lives and livelihoods at stake. For for you to screw that up. So as you become bigger, it starts becoming increasingly important that you actually have a detailed map in terms of how it is that you're gonna get there and how it is that you're thinking about scale. So what do I mean by this, in terms of a roadmap? Here's your first piece of homework that you're gonna do right now. I want you to think big for a minute and I want you to write down a sentence that encompasses what a goal is for you. And right now, you know, to, to quote you know, Jim, Holl- Jim Collins again, Think about you know a big, hairy, audacious goal. Where is it that you want to be? So it might be you know I want to be a ten million dollar company by 2022, or I want to sell a million dollars by 2020, or I want my sales territory to be 20 million. You know I want to have an income of X. So thinking about you know what is that one sentence statement that encompasses the goal that is on your mind right now? So I want you to write that down. Push yourself out of your comfort zone in terms of just committing to something on, on paper of what that one sentence would be that would encapsulate a goal that you want to achieve. Everyone got something down? How many of you felt really uncomfortable doing that? Well, Congratulations, you just took your first step on creating your roadmap. (laughs) One of the most important things about goal setting is writing it down. If it is written down, it makes it that much more real. And in terms of pushing you out of your comfort zone, think about sharing that goal with some people while you're here. As soon as you actually say it out loud and you commit to it, that takes it to a whole other level. So if you feel comfortable doing that and kind of discussing with people in the next you know, day or so that you're here, share it. Take that next step to committing it to, from a roadmap perspective. So I want you to be thinking about that sentence that you've written down as we go through this next, next stage. There's three things that you need to think about from a philosophical perspective. The first is your company philosophy. What kind of company do you want to be? So as you think about that goal that you've written down, you think about where it is that you want to be in the future, what does that look like in terms of you know, what, what you are as a company today and where it is that you want to get to? And one thing that I'll say here is that bigger is not always better. I mean, everyone talks about these, oh, you know, we want to be a $100 million company or we want to, you know, we have to get to scale. Small is a great destination. And sometimes being able to think about what that means you know, to your company in terms of that what, what growth will do to change kind of who you are as a company, as a brand, kind of all of those elements to it, what is going to change to you know, your team and your clients and all the rest, that maybe being a massive company is not right for you, that maybe being a smaller kind of boutique company that can focus on the kind of clients that bring you joy is a great destination. So think about those things in terms of what that means as far as scaling to your specific company and how that's gonna change who you are today to get there three, five years from now. So that's the first, your company philosophy. The second is thinking about your client philosophy. What kind of clients bring you joy? If you sit and look at who your ideal client is that you are working with today, you can say, how can I get you know ten more of those and be able to scale kind of our organization working with those perfect kind of clients that hit you know all the right criteria for you. And that's going to be different for every one of you. In some cases, you know, if you're big into company stores and you know RFPs and big business, then that's going to be a totally different client than if you're the kind of company that focuses more on kind of uh, you know agency oriented business or um, you know creative oriented business. So it's really understanding kind of. Who that ideal client is, and I, I'll share with you um, an experience that we had in terms of you know, transitioning this from the right sleeve perspective. So when Mark first started the business, the, he focused on kind of who he had within his own network. You're you know scrabbling to to you know make ends meet in terms of getting sales and getting you know customers in the door, and so you're going to tap into whoever you have um, that brings you opportunity in terms of um, potential business. So we ended up with a lot of larger clients that were nonprofits, big volume. Tons and tons of t-shirts. It's a really kind of exciting volume from that perspective. When you're first getting going, you're like, wow, you know, a client that spends $100,000 in t-shirts, that's really exciting. But at the end of the day, what that kind of boiled down to was really shitty margin. (laughs) And that was exciting for a time. But as you think about trying to scale a business on that, that the profitability that comes out of that becomes difficult to be able to then invest back in and kind of grow from there. So at that moment in time, of looking at kind of what that current client base looked like and how, who it is that you know, we wanted to be as a company, thinking like that's actually not who we want to scale with in terms of the kind of client base that we want to attract and where we see good growth coming from. So what happens if we were to stop selling to customers like that? What happens if all of a sudden a significant proportion of our revenue disappeared overnight and we transitioned? And that was terrifying at the time. So we made the difficult decision of saying, we're going to shift our focus completely. Margin is an attitude. We want to sell to clients the clients of value, you know, what it is that we do in terms of creative and design and all those elements and be able to charge for it accordingly. And this whole business around procurement dictating to us that you're going to you know, be, have charge this margin, and therefore you know, we're going to grace you with this you know, big order. But maybe next year we're going to pull it from you because someone's going to get skinnier on their price than you are. That that's not, wasn't a great foundation for us to be able to build on. So we fired them as clients and that was terrifying. And we basically started rebuilding from scratch in terms of who, not from scratch, but with the clients that we had that were fantastic and being able to build a foundation of clients that kind of fit that criteria. And it was the best decision that we ever made as a business. So be honest with yourself in terms of looking at your client base as they are now and thinking about who do I want to double down on in terms of clients that I really enjoy working with. And from a supplier perspective, exactly the same you know, um, process applies, that you know, you've got these, these you know, big, whether it's buying groups, whether it's uh, you know huge companies that you know, currently squeeze you on price and demand rebates and do all of those things and they bring you fantastic volume, but maybe there's a whole host of other ones out there that you could be making better money on and have more profitable partnerships with. These things are scary to say no. So have the discipline to think about kind of who that ideal client is and how you want to build that foundation of growth. So that's your client philosophy. The third one is your values and your personal philosophy. So for me, something that's incredibly important to me and to our team is to have a life outside of work. And for me, what that does is it makes people who work in our organization way more interesting. And guess what? That makes them way better salespeople in terms of how it is that they talk to our clients and how it is that they engage kind of internally with our team. So for us, being able to leave at 5 o'clock and have a life outside of work was really important. And if that meant that we grew a little slower as a result of that, that was a decision in terms of what, how, what, it, what it is that I felt was really important from a values perspective and what it was that I personally was willing to trade off in terms of my, the amount of time from a management perspective that I was spending. So think about what kind of sacrifices you're willing to make. And you know, maybe at, you're at a stage in your life where you, you're, you're fine kind of working longer hours and you're willing to put it in because you really want to get that hit that aggressive growth target. That's no problem. But it's just being honest with yourself about what it is that is important to you and what it is that you're willing to trade off from a sacrifice perspective. And that's going to be different for every one of you and different based on the stage of life that you're at. The other piece of this is that as you look to scale, what impact is that going to have on your role specifically? So if you've been the person who's been the primary rainmaker in your role, you spend all your time kind of selling and out there with with customers, and all of a sudden now you've got all these people to manage, and now that you're not spending time with customers anymore, and you're spending time dealing with problems and people and coaching and development, some people love that, some people hate it. So you just got to be honest with yourself in terms of if that's not something that you enjoy doing, hire someone else to do it so that you can keep focusing on what it is that you love and what your unique value is that you can bring to the business. So don't think that just because you want to scale and you want to grow the team and add to it, that means that you're the right person to be managing that. That that might not be the case. So that requires a little bit of of self-reflection and honesty in terms of what it is that you are truly good at and how you think about what your role should be within the organization. And to that point, That maybe you are the right person to run it. Maybe you are really excited about kind of growing the team, and you are willing to ready to shift your focus from uh, from selling to to internal to internal management. What do you need to level up on in terms of your own skill set? You know, If you haven't managed a large team before, you know, what is the experience that you need in order to be able to get good at that? Who can you reach out to from a mentorship perspective? Or you know, what can you be reading or listening to to help you kind of develop those skills? So again, that self-awareness in terms of where your own gaps are and weaknesses and where, what it is that you need to level up on to get to that next stage in terms of your role as you scale. So that's the personal and values part. So just to recap, company philosophy, client philosophy, and your personal, your personal philosophy and values. Those three pieces are going to govern kind of how you think about your roadmap. The outcome of all of those things is going to dictate the timing on all this. So again, going back to that personal philosophy piece, that if you're willing to work, you know, 24 hours a day and you really want to gun it in terms of your growth, then have at it. If you want to be more measured kind of within this, then think about the fact that you got to be more patient in terms of how it is that that growth is going to happen. So, if you sit for a second and think about those three elements, and you think about that in the context of the sentence that you wrote down, how does that impact that sentence? Does it change things in terms of what you thought that you wanted to have as a goal? Or do you look at that sentence and say, you know, within those three elements, that fits with the overall values that we think about in terms of our company, our clients, my personal philosophy. So let's take a second, look back at your sentence, think about that. All right. Building the dream team. Scaling ultimately comes down to people. If you can't build the team around you to be able to get to that next level, you're not going to be successful. And people is the single hardest part of building a business. No one goes out and tells you how to do this. No one teaches you typically how to hire, how to train, how to develop, how to to level up yourself in terms of your own skills. So this is by far and away where it is that you as a leader should be investing the most of your time. So thinking about developing a team, thinking about how it is to be recruiting talent, um, thinking about how to continue to develop yourself, that as an overall percentage of the time that you spend, this is the most important thing that you can be doing as a leader. So how do you do this? Thinking about structure, we're going to talk about structuring the team and how it is that you scale on that basis. This is a multi-step, multi-year process when you look at achieving that goal that you wrote down in your sentence. And it's something that you're gonna to have to reevaluate every step along the way because it will constantly evolve. You might think, you know, I've nailed this for the next two years. I know exactly how we're gonna do this. We're gonna plug this person into this role and we're gonna be able to kind on a scale like this and guess what, it never works out that way, ever. You make a mishire, you know, someone doesn't work out, or someone like shits the bed in terms of their goals. These things happen, and you have to be able to course correct along the way in order to be able to kind of continually evolve that. So this concept of developing kind of that that roadmap for as far as the team is concerned is not a one and done. This is something that you should be looking at all the time and thinking about how it is that you're going to constantly kind of move those chess pieces around in order to be able to get to that end objective. So how do you do this? First of all, setting the foundation. Going back to that current evaluation that you did of your team. What opportunities can you provide for growth for your existing team? So one of the things when I first took over running the team at Right Sleeve that I spent a lot of time on was looking at how do we create career paths for people. As a small business, it's sometimes hard to attract people to want to stay with you for a long period of time because they have a hard time kind of seeing where they can grow and what their future is within the company. Whereas if you say, you know you can plug them into a system and say you're going to start off in this role, but here's what we're going to do to grow and develop you and here's what it's going to take for you to get to that next stage and then beyond that to that next stage and you get them excited about the fact that they see a future for themselves in the organization. And they look at the fact that we're going to invest in you because we believe that you're someone who has a lot of potential and that you can have you know, a good career kind of or whatever you know, amount of time that they want to stay with your company, but they see a growth path for themselves. So laying that out in a way that is actually detailed both for your own purposes in terms of thinking about how do I need to continue to provide opportunities for that person to grow and also so that they understand what the expectations are in terms of what success looks like for them at every stage along the way. So an example of this, we bring, as Stephen mentioned when he was on the panel this morning, we bring in people at the account coordinator level. So we believe in bringing people in junior and being able to grow and develop and groom them to those next stages. So it all comes down to kind of building blocks in terms of what it is that they need from a knowledge perspective. So the things that we focus on when they walk in the door is you need to understand product, you need to understand pricing, you need to understand sourcing, and that kind of gives you that initial foundation for being able to put together presentations and quotes as that first step along the way. So once you've kind of mastered all that, you need to understand design and decoration and how it is that you think about being able to offer kind of more creative things and how it is that you approach kind of that, marrying those the client objective together with, you know, with magical end results. The next piece beyond that is the client management side of it. So how do you give them more exposure in terms of being able to have interactions with clients, in terms of being able to help teach them that process of shepherding a client through the decision-making process and getting them to the close? Or even more on the business development side or then those initial meetings, how do you focus on giving them exposure to that and ultimately being able to give them the ability to run with things themselves, as far as that, you know, run with a client opportunity themselves kind of from beginning to end or take more of that kind of leadership role with that? But you have to think about that in terms of consciously giving those opportunities for development, because it's so easy within the day-to-day of running the business, of like, put together this quote, put together this presentation, get it out the door, and the next thing you know, you know, a year and a half has passed, and that person has had no opportunity to be able to grow within how it is that they, uh, they develop their client management skills. So consciously laying out a timeline, both for yourselves in terms of how to think about that, but also for them to know what success looks like at every stage along the way, is the key, the key to being able to develop them and level them up within your organization. One, two kind of caveats that I'll say kind of around this is that not everyone necessarily wants to grow into what that next stage is. So some people that start as a a coordinator actually don't necessarily want to sell and if they're really good at what they do and you can keep them engaged kind of in that role and they derive great satisfaction out of that specific role that they're in, then that's no problem. So it's being able to look at each specific person within your organization and say, not everyone necessarily fits exactly within this trajectory of how we have laid things out, and being able to develop kind of unique plans for each individual according to what it is that they want to do and how it is that they want to grow and develop. And lastly, you gotta make the tough decisions. Sometimes when you hit those next stages of growth, the people that started with you are not gonna be the right fit. And being able to recognize that and have the courage to part ways at that point, is going to set you up for way better longer term success than saying like, oh, maybe they can work out or maybe we can try and train them or try and kind of move them into a different role and, and, uh, and try and have them be successful in that. So make those tough decisions because ultimately if you're going to scale successfully, you gotta have every people that believe in kind of where the bus is going and that they are excited about that journey. So <clears throat> defining future roles. One of the things that I see a lot um, with distributors that I talk to is this belief that we're just gonna keep hiring salespeople. Like you just keep adding those in there and that ultimately that's just gonna create, um, the revenue's just gonna come out of all that and they just kinda keep plugging, plugging, plugging in there. And what ends up happening out of this is that you end up with an enormous amount of inefficiency and duplication. Because all of a sudden you've got 10 people across your organization calling the same vendor and saying, can I get the tracking ID for that org that shipped today? And I'm sure from a supplier perspective, that drives you guys nuts, because you're listening to this all day long, saying I would just like to speak to one person from that company and be able to give all the tracking IDs across the orders that are going out for that company today versus speaking to 10 different people. So as early as possible, think about specialization. And this can be scary in terms of, this is where the investment piece comes in, because you're thinking, I can't afford to hire someone in support for, you know, the amount of volume that person is doing, or I can't afford to hire someone who's dedicated to production. But what I would challenge you to think about is that you can't afford not to. If you look at how it is that the spectrum across the entire sales process and this applies both distributor and supplier that each role within that process has different skill sets and different things that make them make them good at those, each of those stages. So if you have someone who is really good at sales, they're a fantastic hunter, and you're asking them to go out there and hunt and bring in new business, but you're also asking them to go like check things on the production floor or asking them to call and follow up on an order, that's crazy. Like that's totally crazy to be taking someone and wasting that amazing skill set they have to bring new business in the door for you and having them spend time on something that they are not good at and that is not adding value. So as early as possible, say, how can I remove everything off the plate of that person so that I can set them up for success to be the best at what they can be within their role? Let the hunters hunt. Take everything else off their plate so that they can just hunt. As soon as they bring that opportunity in the door, hand it off to someone else. We think about that next stage in the sales process in terms of ideation, that all of that comes down to creativity, it comes down to sourcing, it comes down to being able to match those objectives to the products, the design, to the ideas. That is a very different skill set than someone who is really good at following up with production and managing that checklist. So each of those steps along the way kind of requires a totally different skill set and ultimately is should be different people as you grow. So as early as possible, start to specialize Start to specialize um, those areas and separate out those functions and hire for those specific areas and leverage that. You are gonna grow so much faster if you're willing to take that risk and to invest kind of, in that stage. And I know that there's that, that ends up is painful from a profitability perspective, having been there, <laughs> it's very painful. But if you can make that decision to say, we're gonna put that investment in now and be able to build upon that infrastructure, you will be set up way better for success than if you just kind of keep Plugging in the same roles and having everyone do everything across the entire sales process, and thinking about kind of what the right structure is for your organization. So outside sales versus inside sales, kind of customer service, you know, production, um, whether that might be you know a hunter supported by an account coordinator, farmers who can take existing book of business and grow them, you know, marketing driven growth where marketing is responsible for bringing in leads and the team kind of then takes it and runs with it, or all of the above. So look at kind of what it is that's going to make the most sense for the capabilities you have within your organization now and thinking about what that structure looks like for where you want to grow to. Where are your gaps? You know, if marketing is going to be a big focus for you and you either aren't, that's maybe not something that's a strength of yours, then hire someone. Again, that's scary in terms of saying, how can I afford to have a full-time marketing person? We made that leap on with, uh, on the right side two years ago where we decided that, you know, we would had this, we were all kind of, you know, people were all doing social media, they were all doing whatever. Everyone was having kind of a hand in the pie as far as marketing was concerned and it created a very disjointed experience in terms of the brand presence and it got, always got pushed to the side. Whenever orders came in or things were happening, it was the first thing that fell off anyone's plate because sales was more important than than doing marketing. So, well, can we really afford to bring on a full-time dedicated marketing person? That's scary in terms of how big that investment would be. But when you sit down and actually crunch the numbers on it and say, how much extra business would we need to bring in in order to be able to cover the cost of that person? How can we track that? So if we look at kind of you know, using common skew to tag every order that comes in as a result of marketing, or to be able to capture that information and be able to look back on that and say, you know over the course of six months, over the course of a year, how much extra business did we generate as a result of having someone who is exclusively focused on that? Those sorts of, invest, those sorts of investments start to become a no-brainer. So it's really doing kind of the reverse engineering around all of that and determining kind of how it is that you're going to pay off that investment and being willing to take the leap and saying, we're going to risk this, we're going to try it and we're going to track it really closely. And we're going to have a defined time period around it. If it's not successful over you know X period of time, then we get rid of it. Two years on, it's been extraordinarily successful um, for the business and has brought in some amazing opportunities of clients that we would never have had the opportunity to work with otherwise. Capacity, so in looking at the, again, this goes back to kind of laying of the continuum. Where are people gonna max out along the way? So you know, how much volume can one salesperson handle, as an example? How many transactions can one production person follow up on? How, you know, on the supplier side, how big a you know, group of clients can an inside salesperson handle? Looking at kind of where, again, those bottlenecks are along the way and thinking about when will, the, when will that person max out in that role and how far in advance do I have to plan to, in order to be able to not have that be a problem. So if you look at a typical timeline around how long it takes to hire someone, you're usually three months in total from the point in time that you uh, put up the job posting, you do all the interviews, you successfully kind of get through that final stage of offer and kind of get them on board, that that might be two months and you're a minimum kind of one month timeline in terms of just getting them oriented and trained and kind of even starting to get up to speed and depending on the role, you're possibly months and months after that in terms of when it is it they can be successful in that role. So, you got to back that out and reverse engineer around kind of, well, what point do I need to start backfilling around hiring kind of roles to be able to, to forecast that that person kind of in this function is going gonna, is gonna to max out as we start pushing more volume through and being able to hire someone you can either support them or you can take their role, or they move on to something else. So, again, this all goes back to kind of you know, the planning and the capacity you know, um, identification around that. So how do you actually map this out? What does that look like? It could literally be like you know, a Gantt chart on an Excel file. It could be saying, you know, we, we need to add um, a new you know, inside salesperson um, in month six kind of, of the plan, and or, you know, we're gonna be shooting for a sales target of X and therefore kind of we need coordinators or whatever else that might be. It's laying it all out within a specific timeline of being able to say, we need to plug these people into these roles during that time and it's gonna cost X. So looking at it from a cash flow perspective in terms of the, you know, how that all kind of lays out in a plan and thinking about you know, how much each person on the team can sell this year. You know, How much could they sell next year if we didn't add any support? How much could they sell if we did add support? Would that be a total game changer for us in, being, in terms of making that investment now? Would that suddenly catapult them up to a whole other level and all of a sudden that support person has paid for themselves you know, and then some? So it's mapping kind of all of those things out in terms of at what point in time does it make sense to add kind of those different roles and how do you put that on a timeline? So this becomes basically kind of in terms of the deliverable out of this, this is basically a people forecast is what kind of it's, uh, you, could, you could call it. When we go through a planning exercise every year around this uh, time of year at Right Sleeve where the salespeople sit down and they take a look at what revenue target they want to hit within their portfolio next year. And it becomes this entertaining exercise that Stephen and Lachlan go through where the salesperson says, all right, you know, I want to sell X. And they're like, well, we actually think you could sell Y. <laughs> this negotiation process around kind of getting to that, uh, that point where they're in agreement. But it's actually a very analytical process of taking a look at what's the existing portfolio that they have in place now and the potential of that. Um, what is likely to repeat kind of within that client base? Uh, where are the gaps gonna be in terms of if they do wanna hit a specific target, what is the gap between what they have now and where they need to get to? How are they gonna fill that gap in terms of um, new opportunities coming in or marketing, um, creating leads for that? And basically it comes down to kind of this final you know, exercise where by November, the, the plan is in place for next year. So it's broken out in terms of the total dollar value every salesperson and sales team is committing to sell is broken up by month based on um, what it is that their portfolio, like the kind of um, timing of when, what their portfolio did last year, and then ultimately that got, that gets broken down by week. So that becomes the basis of how it is that we think about kind of that people forecast. So you know, if we have a person who is currently selling. 500 and they want to get to 750 or they want to get to a million or whatever that next kind of stage is, what do they need to get there? If we were to put an account coordinator in now, would they be able to hit a million by the end of the year in terms of what they have with potential in their existing portfolio and how to get there? So it's really looking at you know the structure of the targets, what's their potential, um, at what rate do you add, and kind of reverse engineering based on that in order to be able to see what it is that you're going to need in terms of team to get to that point. And that's just that's a single year. And thinking kind of longer term, that if you were to then say, you know, we're going to do X million this year, we want to do Y million next year, that what's that going to take in terms of people to get to that point? Don't forget about support and infrastructure. Ultimately, this is not all about sales. For everything that you add in terms of sales at the top line, all of that creates work down below. you know whether that's tracking production whether that's invoicing whether that's billing you know all the other pieces that go into this that you have to look at how the pressure points um, that you're putting into the top of the funnel, how that's gonna impact everything down, down the line. And at what point are those people gonna cap out in terms of their capacity? And at what point do you need to add kind of support and, and um, additional people at that stage? So this literally can come down to an exercise of volume. You know, How many purchase orders can a production person handle? How many invoices and payables can finance handle until you have to add more people? When do you need a dedicated admin office manager? We hired an office manager for the first time this year. and that, utterly changed my life in terms of what it is that it took off my plate and made me realize how much time I was spending on the stupidest things, that the least value add of how I should be spending my time. And at the time, it felt, again, scary. How can we afford to hire someone to do just that? And now I look at her role and think, how could we have not done this earlier? I'm so stupid to have not invested in this earlier because what I've been able to do with my time as a result of her taking stuff off my plate has paid for her role and then some. So it's just looking at all of these things that the temptation, especially as a a small business owner, is that, oh, I can just handle that or I'll fit this in at this time or I'll do this stuff at night. And at the end of the day, you're you're doing yourself a disservice by continuing to think that you can handle everything across the spectrum. So how do you get everything off your plate that is not kind of adding, allowing you to add the most value to your business at this moment in time? And the last piece in this is literally infrastructure. When are you going to grow out of your office space? You know, do you need, if um, looking at things like your phone systems, if you're gonna start hiring people you know, across the country and you've got physical phone systems where, that are sitting in your office, do you, know, you, you have to move to VoIP? Like, all these different things in terms of thinking about from an infrastructure perspective that where you need to make those investments in order to be able to, to scale. Okay, metrics. The numbers piece of it. For those of you that are in, handle the finance sides of your business, this is what you're gonna like. <laughs> First off, How do do you decide what metrics you're gonna track? So we always talk about leading indicators and lagging indicators. So leading indicators being things like the sales pipeline. You know, how many presentations do we have out there? How many meetings is the team doing? Um, What are our days to close in terms of, from that point in time a presentation is out until the point in time that uh, that order is booked? And the lagging indicators, you know, sales, gross margin, profit, all these things are like the rear view mirror. Once they've happened, we can't change them. And if you're not paying attention to what's coming down the road, you're not gonna be able to hit the goal. So it's making sure that when you lay out the metrics that are gonna be important to your business for moving forward, that you're looking at creating both leading and lagging. And those are gonna be different for everyone, but just know that you gotta have them on both sides in terms of how you're tracking all this. The most important part of this, it's one thing to say, you know, sales is going to be the thing that we're going to watch or, you know, margin is going to be the thing that we're going to watch. But if you don't have a way to actually track this and have tools around it, then it's, it, it's just, a, it's, it's no different than saying, you know, I want to hit this, you know, sales goal for the year, but doing nothing around kind of helping yourself get there. So one of the most powerful things that we did in terms of hitting our goals was that whole reverse engineering process that I talked about where we literally got to that point of granularity where our weekly, our goal is, is broken out week by week by rep. And that is a Google Sheet share shared across the entire team, and we review it as a team every Monday morning. How did we do against our goal last week? Our goal was X. We hit Y. What percentage was that of their goal? How are we tracking year to date? So every Monday morning, the entire team gathers around and we go through um, that metric. That transparency, kind of, with the team, has hugely helped, kind of bring everyone together, because ultimately this is not just about sales. You want everyone pulling in the same direction in terms of those seats on the bus, production, finance, everyone else that actually makes that stuff happen once the order is in. You want them to be equally as invested in the goal, because at the end of the day, if they're not tracking that either, you know, maybe we're not invoicing fast enough. Uh, maybe we're not getting our shipping costs fast enough. All the pieces that can hold up that process to hitting the goal. If everyone is invested in that, this is the goal we've got to hit this week. Then everyone wants to hit that target because no one wants to hit that Monday morning and have a say like we didn't make it last week. So if everyone is invested in that and that is totally transparent across the entire company, then it. And that made an enormous difference for us in terms of how it is that, that the um, finance and admin team specifically kind of thought about goal setting and hitting that. So the more they are brought in, the more they will buy in. And I would encourage you, if that's something that makes you uncomfortable in terms of being more transparent um, about that information, To think about why. Like why does it make you uncomfortable? Why do you, why, what are you scared of in terms of sharing those numbers? And what difference would it make to your company to make that more visible? So as I said, get granular. Um, I mentioned about the weekly tracking. That's something that is critical um, for us in terms of making sure that we are staying on track. But that's the lagging indicator. How do you make sure you got the leading indicator in there as well? So we're constantly um, monitoring what's getting, what, what are we looking to put into production? And Steven developed this you know, highly nerdy spreadsheet that we call the week by week, um, where literally the team will go in and they will list the orders that they are committing to get into production that week. And they have a, the, the amount that they are committing to do in one column and the amount that they actually did in the other. So it starts to give you a gauge of what we call salesperson's optimism. Did they actually think, oh yeah, I'm gonna slam 50 grand into production this week and it turns out to be 10? Or you know, how accurate? are they kind of in that forecast? And therefore, how um, specific can you get in terms of what's getting booked in a given, uh, in a given week versus what, um, what, actually, uh, what they thought was gonna get booked? So as, as granular as possible in terms of you know, weekly tracking against that, um, other metrics might be more longer term than that. So you know, m- uh, tracking monthly margin, as an example, or monthly cash flow forecasting. So whatever makes sense in terms of the rhythm of those metrics is just making sure that that becomes a discipline that you adhere to on that every week, every month. It's a cadence, it's a rhythm, and that is the thing that's going to keep you on track. A thing to think about within all this in terms of what I call setting limits. So you may decide that you're going to sacrifice kind of near-term profit because you're going to put money back in the business. You're going to you know, hire a support person, you're going to hire a marketing person, you're going to you know, invest in new office space kind of ahead of that growth, um, whatever that case may be. But it's knowing that that investment needs to pay off. So you actually have have to have a plan in terms of how it is that you're gonna leverage that investment in order to make it make sense. So it's a limited time kind of horizon until you can see a return on that, uh, that investment that you're putting in. And this last piece around, beware sacrificing gross margin for growth. If you're saying, you know, we're gonna take that huge order, but on 20 points, that does not become a foundation that is easy to build upon kind of year after year. So in thinking about how it is that, you know, that long-term outcome of that might be a nice hit next year, but all of a sudden you're like, all right, so that means that, you know, that salesperson did a million dollars this year. But in reality, that $300,000 of it is not gonna repeat next year. So how do you think about what the impact is on that kind of as a business the year after and how you think about that repeatable, scalable business? The cash death trap. (laughs) This is a business. That is really difficult from a cash flow perspective. That you know, money coming going going out the door as soon as uh, you know the factories produce the goods. You're not invoicing your client until the time after that. They're not paying you until 30 days after that. That's one thing to manage. Kind of when you're a couple people, it's a whole other thing to manage when you're a much larger organization and there is money just flying out the door. So getting. Um, very rigorous about this in terms of tracking cash flow and how it is that you manage that becomes extremely important the bigger you get. Um, Some basic things in terms of how to improve this. Negotiate terms with every vendor that you work with. There's no reason, unless they are a brand new vendor, there is no reason you should not be on terms with them remember when we first started working with some larger clients and doing kind of larger orders and there was this fear around asking for a deposit. It's like, oh, if we ask for a deposit, they're not gonna wanna go ahead. They're gonna cancel the order and they're gonna go with someone else because we're forcing them to make a deposit. That's bullshit. I can tell you that Clients are happy to pay deposits all day long if you can give them a reason for it. So if you can explain to them, this is a larger order, I need to reserve space at the factory, or whatever it is that's gonna take to get that order underway, and you can explain why it is that you're getting a deposit up front, they will pay it all day long. Some of like the you know, biggest brand name clients that we have worked with, that that was very scary to do, all of them pay deposits, and even customers that we have dealt with for years. We have a threshold of $10,000. As soon as an order is over $10,000, we are requiring a deposit. All these things just help manage cash flow. So if you can get that money in the door up front in order to be, if you're having to pay a deposit to the supplier as well and you can match those things, especially on larger orders, overseas orders, do that matching up front so that you are covered from the get-go and you've got cash in the bank before that final bill comes in. Other kind of tactics around this. New customers, have them pay up front, or COD. Um, Whatever it is that's gonna reduce risk in terms of cash flow for you, that don't be afraid to ask for that. You would be amazed at what it is that customers are willing to do when you ask. At the end of the day, this is is an extremely challenging piece. And so having kind of a, um, a tool around this in terms of how it is that you manage cash flow, it can be a really simple spreadsheet of like, this is what we're expecting in from a receivables perspective, you know, broken out over 30 days, 60 days, 90 days, this is what's going out the door from a payables perspective. Match that all, cash in the bank at the bottom, cash out the bank, uh, out of the bank at the end of the day. But actually keeping that you know, as an updated tool that you're, you're managing on a, a daily basis as opposed to just like looking at the bank balance and hoping that you're gonna be able to pay things or meaning that you're gonna have to push off paying suppliers for a period of time because all of a sudden the cash is out the door and your receivables are stretching out 60, 90 days. Um, so just being disciplined around that. All right, making it happen. She's so like, this is all well and good. You have just told us a whole bunch of stuff that seems really hard and seems like a lot of work. How <laughs> can we actually you know, make this happen. So that whole methodology that we've just walked through in terms of a recap of what it is that the you know, outcomes or outputs are out of this. In that evaluation phase, the three outputs that are gonna come out of that, the current state of your team, the current state of your systems and process, the company, client, and personal values philosophy. If you've gone through that evaluation process, those are the three things that you should have written down kind of by the end of that evaluation process. The three outputs as far as planning, or four outputs as far as planning is concerned. Development plan for your current team. Where can you take them of who you already have, you know, sitting within you and your organization now in terms of where they can grow? Who do you have to add to the team in order to be able to hit those next phases of um, forecasting that you've done? What are the key metrics that you're gonna put in place? What's the discipline that you're gonna instill around that in terms of keeping those those tools and metrics up to date so you're actually tracking that stuff regularly? And lastly, that cash flow forecasting tool. I can't emphasize that bottom part enough. There's way too many people that just are kind of hoping the money's in the bank. So Jamie's laughing. She's like, oh yes, I've seen that many times. (laughs) So those are the four outputs in terms of the planning phase. We call kind of um, future-proofing of the structure. One of the things that becomes difficult kind of as you as you scale in terms of this making it happen piece is that if your business is, becomes dependent on one person, whether that's from a sales perspective, um, whether that's from a finance perspective, whatever that potential linchpin is, how do you make sure that that dependency is not, does not exist? How do you capture kind of roles and responsibilities or ways of doing things? You know, if we, uh, we had someone that was um, in a kind of production and shipping role, and uh, when she left, we realized that like people didn't know how to use the postage machine. Like, just the stupidest things like that of thinking about you know, documenting uh, processes around kind of what it is that people do kind of day in and day out. So that if something happens, they get sick things don't work out, they quit, whatever the case may be, that you can plug someone into that role very easily because that role is defined in terms of what it is that that person does, what the responsibilities are, and what it is the day-to-day entails kind of of that role. So you can plug someone right in, get them trained up, and make the entire thing seamless, no impact on the business. One um, last thing I'll say around here in terms of the future-proofing piece of it is that I see a lot in this industry, um, This with and this stems from kind of the historical way in which business was structured in this industry the 50 50 commission split, where the person has kind of the book of business, they can walk out the door tomorrow and take the book with you. It is very difficult to build value in your business if that is how it is structured. If you can have a portfolio walk out the door tomorrow and all of a sudden you've lost a million, two million dollars in sales because that salesperson walked, if you want to sell your business someday, like, Why is someone going to buy that if they know that there's no guarantee that 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 sales is going to exist kind of for them one or two years down the road? So think about how it is that you can mitigate risk around this. This is a relationship-based business. You want your sales team to have fantastic relationships with your clients and to be able to build those and grow those, but ultimately you don't want that so dependent that if that salesperson leaves, the client is going to want to leave with them. So how do you wrap the entire brand experience around uh, the customer? So they, they believe in kind of doing business with you as a company in terms of your values, your purpose, your philosophy, you know, all of those things that ultimately are going to make them want to continue to do business with you regardless of the fact that the fantastic person they really liked working with has left. So key components for success. Accountability and discipline are critical for this. That learning that we had, kind of early on, of just like crossing our fingers and hoping around goals, it's extremely difficult to build a business on. So you have to be willing to be able to hold yourself accountable to this, and to have the discipline around tracking these things, spending time on kind of the tools, the planning, the spreadsheets, you know, all the things that it's going to take to be able to to map out a plan to move this forward. So you got to be ready for that, and. That's going to, in terms of when you want to make that commitment in time and how, far, how quickly you want to grow, is going to be unique to all of you. But if you do want to be committed to saying, you know, I want to grow this and now's the time, kind of do it, that you've got to realize that you've got to invest kind of in that in terms of um, the planning and the tools with it. Don't let yourself slip on the goals. This is something where that week by week becomes absolutely critical. If we see that we're slipping and all of a sudden we missed a week, we missed another week, and now our year to date is low, then we've got to think about how we're going to make that up. So that becomes something if everyone is aware of that and we're all kind of you know, on that same bus heading in that direction, that, that becomes, you, know, you shift the focus to all right, we're not spending enough time in business development or we need to be doing kind of more marketing, you know, whatever it is that we need to do to fill that gap, that if you are tracking that stuff weekly, you can course correct before it becomes too late. Otherwise, if it's, you know, the end of the year and you're like, whoops, we missed it again, too late. You can't do anything about it at that point. Whereas if you're identifying in, you know, March that we're slipping, then you're gonna catch that long before kind of the end of the year happens. The original kind of um, planning in terms of the timelines, again, just this is not a one and done. You're going to be constantly reviewing these plans in terms of how it is that you think about kind of those next stages of growth and kind of course correcting around that. Timelines, to say if someone doesn't work out, you're going to have to redo the forecast. So it's thinking about um, being able to be flexible around this, constantly reviewing that, and thinking about how it is that you can rejig as required. So, final thoughts scaling is really fucking hard. It can really kind of take it out of you, and there are going to be points in time where you're just like, "I want to give up. Like this really sucks. You've, you know, invested in someone, they're amazing, and all of a sudden they quit. Like these things are going to happen all the time, and it's really, really hard." So one of the things that is so important to do in this is to celebrate every milestone win along the way, keeping the team motivated, keeping people excited, um, you know, getting to that next stage. That whether that's kind of doing stuff as a, you know, an, an outing or an event or even just like you know, someone lands a big order of celebrating that kind of in the moment in the office. That all those little wins, those are the things that add up and kind of get to that the end of that journey. And one of the reasons why you're here is that. Having peers and people that have been there and been through that experience, I'm sure everyone in this room has been through some kind of shitty experience in terms of you know, someone quitting or a client kind of um, you know, walking out the door, whatever the case may be, um, challenges with kind of managing the team. That That is why like, there is so much power kind of in the community here is being able to be vulnerable about sharing some of the crappy things that you've gone through and I'm sure that there is someone who has been through that that can help you in terms of share, sharing experiences they've had or you know, ways in which they handled a particular situation, so please let Leverage that. Like that is, you know, a, an enormous opportunity, kind of for you here to be able to to be kind of open and share those experiences with each other, and be able to develop that peer group. That ultimately, you've now got someone that you can call. That if you hit kind of a tough spot down the road, and it means that you can pick up the phone and say, like, "Wow, this just happened and it really sucked." Like, have you ever been through this before? What would you do? Just getting someone's opinion on that. So the more that you can develop kind of that trust and openness um, with peers within the industry, it's going to hugely accelerate the growth of your business. Questions. Discussion? Is everyone's head about to explode? Are you all falling asleep? Are you all? <laughs> Can
2: you kind of give some tips or some thoughts
1: around? So Nate's question was um, an example of a principal who um, was originally had a whole book of business. Now as they're scaling, they want to be able to start um, relinquishing those clients. So we went through exactly this with Right Sleeve. When I came on board, um, Mark was the primary salesperson at that point in time. And as we started building what became CommSkew with the the technology in-house that the idea was to be able to get... Um, everything off his plate in terms of um, managing customers. So the uh, strategy around that was basically in terms of involving it was actually Stephen was the one that <laughs> ultimately played this role. So you can ask him in terms of how that, that transition happened. But when he first started working with Mark as an account coordinator, um, that it was starting to develop the trust with those clients that they would call him first instead of calling Mark. And then ultimately kind of transitioning to the point in time where Mark was just out of the picture. And that he was still, you know, available if the client wanted to call, but the client knew that calling him was useless. And if they, they wanted to get something done, they had to call Stephen. So <laughs> that, that whole process around kind of being able to transition that clients and create that trust. Um, is a huge part of that. Um, but you have to be, it has to make sense kind of economically in terms of the size of business t- to be able to have you not doing that sales role. So that's where kind of that point, com- point in time comes around kind of the economics of that to be able to have you focused more kind of on with that management piece or business development piece or vision or strategy or marketing or whatever else is gonna help kind of propel the growth if you're not selling. Well, I loved everything you said. One of the thing that things that resonates the most right now being a new small business is Hiring people is terrifying so far the only person that I've hired is my aunt who's been in the industry and then another family member so um, Do you have any? Suggestions or advice for some of the best or worst hiring practices that you've heard of you know I've heard people say Strengths finder tests or doing this or certain types of questions or maybe where you're meeting them at What's worked for you and what did you realize did not work to hire great people. Yeah. One thing I'll point you guys to from a resource perspective, um, I've written an ebook uh, that we have on the blog called The People Series Guide. So it's all laid out based on um, hiring, there's like some sample interview kind of questions in there, but it also um, breaks out kind of skills at different um, different roles in the organization and then talks about kind of retention and development and, um, and kind of reviews and all those things. Um, so that's on the, on the blog in the resources area. But the um, key thing, the biggest mistake that I see people make is saying, I want to hire someone who has done this role before. And what ends up happening is that, first of all, they haven't done that role before at your company. They've done that role before at someone else's company. And that might not be the same way you want it done. Um, But it also means that they might get bored an awful lot faster if they've already done this before somewhere else. So um, the biggest thing that we look for in hiring is attitude, um, culture fit, and personality and everything else is teachable. So if you can take a look at you know, what it is that that, um, from an from a attitude perspective, that person needs to be successful in that role, and this again breaks down to looking at all those different functions, that someone who needs to be successful in a hunter capacity is extremely different than someone that needs to be successful in a production capacity, where they want to like, you know, manage a checklist and that, that um, brings great satisfaction to them versus someone who is a hunter, the great satisfaction is making the kill and you know, bringing in the opportunity. So um, identifying kind of what success looks like first kind of in that role from an overall um, personality and attitude perspective and then thinking about how do you structure interview questions to bring out kind of how they have shown those skills in other roles that aren't necessarily exactly the same as what you are hiring for. So we end up, um, especially for account coordinators, we end up hiring a lot of people who have had um, retail experience. If someone has waitressed and done a role like that, that is a hard job in terms of being you know, put on the spot and having to move quickly and um, be able to be extremely personable and handle stressful situations. Um, all the things that are required for success in this business, like either working you know, in waitressing or retailing as that, like, all day long in terms of the types of skills and experience that they will have been through um, and having the right attitude around that. So I think that giving as much um, investment and time upfront in terms of what does success look like in that role and how do we try and find those attributes um, within the interview process that you're gonna end up with a way more successful outcome um, than just saying I wanna find someone who has done exactly this. I was wondering how do you guys structure account managers and the account coordinators and who gets
0: one and who doesn't like, how does that work?
1: Um, It's all based on um, either existing sales or um, potential. So if we see someone that is just killing it in terms of how it is that they are growing sales and we think if we can actually give them support at this moment in time, they're gonna be able to to knock it out of the park, that we might make that investment a little earlier on than someone who is kind of more growing at a, a more measured pace. Um, but typically it's puts some specific numbers around it. Um, by the time someone is either kind of at 750 or tracking to 750, we usually give them um, a partial account coordinator, so a shared um, resource, to try and get that quoting in the presentation building kind of off their plate. And by the time they're tracking towards a million, they typically have a dedicated resource, although we're experimenting with that a bit in terms of um, that there's potentially people can have handle more than that um, in terms of a shared resource. Kirby, nice. you finally gonna get your turn. <laughs> that was really
0: impressive. Um, so, actually, kind of building on Rich's question, you had mentioned if we do uh, or if we're paying a 50/50 split, that the, maybe that's not the best way. So, what? How do if you're willing to? I mean, we do a 50/50 split yep. right now. So, what do you recommend? How do you how do you guys structure that or or? how do you recommend it anyway
1: I think that I mean it, it's the the compensation piece is one part of it but ultimately who owns the book of business so for us our model is that we are bringing we are providing people with leads through marketing through you know an existing book of business so when they walk in the door they are being or when they when they Progress to that role of what we call an account manager. We are giving them business as opposed to saying you're coming here And we're going to give you a desk and a phone and like have at it (laughs) And ultimately in that case that sets up a different scenario that if they're bringing in um, The business then it's more kind of their portfolio that they can walk with so um, So compensation is one part of it, but it's also just in terms of how you think about client development um, We do base plus commission, so um, I'm a, a big believer in people need to to feel safe I mean Simon Sinek talks a lot about this, how do you create safety within um, within a role, so if you can have um, a base salary that gives people that sense of I can pay my rent, I can you know feed my family, I can do whatever regardless of, of if I'm successful right away, that it gives a little bit more ramp time in order to be able to build that, um, you grow that book of business or hit that sales goal or whatever um, the case may be. So we always start with a base salary and then the the incentive piece is around um around the, around the bonus, or commission rather. Catherine, I don't yeah. know if you can answer this or not, but something in my head coming out of the corporate world and into a small business owner is the sense of um, if we write down policies and procedures and I say at 750,000 you get X, do I not have to provide that for everybody? Do we run into some really murky water when you say you, you could maybe have it because I see potential? Do you see that causing a riff at all, or do you just...? I think that honesty and transparency kind of rules the day on that, and if if someone is you know, not necessarily an underperformer, but someone who isn't kind of growing at the rate that you would hope, that that is a conversation around, you know, here's why we aren't giving you support right now because you're not doing the right behaviours to get you to that next stage. You aren't kind of going out and having those face-to-face meetings. You aren't thinking about business development. You aren't thinking about how to kind of, you know, get deeper within an organisation. That if they're not doing those behaviours up front, then how do I have any sense of confidence that you're going to be able to get to that next stage? So I think that, it doesn't necessarily have to be a written policy. It could be more like this is planning in your own head in terms of how it is that you think about that or it may be that, you know, in terms of um, guidance that you're providing when someone comes on board is that, you know, this is typically how the path goes. Same way as we might see, you might typically spend kind of two years in an account coordinator role, but we've promoted as early as like nine months and as late as kind of, you know, well beyond two years. So it's all unique to the individual. It's all kind of, it's, it's guidelines in terms of how you think about development. The production role? What's, I mean, what's the map for them, you know, typically where you take, where, where are those people in production where, are you moving where they can grow. Yeah, that that's trickier. I got to say, um, we originally started um, where that was the that was one component of someone's job. So they did production, they did bill posting, they did office management. Um, it's kind of a mash of a bunch of kind of more like admin um, and support type functions. And then as the organization grew, it kind of separated out to a dedicated production person, you know, a dedicated payables person, a dedicated office management person. Um, so there was kind of growth within that in terms of being able to move to a more specialized role. Um, but ultimately, it's trickier to be able to develop from. There, you know, maybe that person, as depending on the growth rate of the company, that maybe they could do become like a vendor relations role or something, you know, along those lines. Or, but it's really understanding, kind of, what do they get excited about? Like that, you know, where do they see their potential with the within the organization? Because most people who are in production don't want to go into sales. So, it's also, you know, in some cases there might not be a next step. There might be kind of, all right, they're going to be with us for two, three couple years, and it's going to be fantastic, but there's no room for them to grow, so ultimately they then move on and we bring someone else in. And that's okay, too. Sam, you're allowed to ask questions, too.
2: <laughs> no, I have a good perspective. I mean, I work for Catherine, and and, um, and so she does all the things that she's proposing that you all do, so she lives it. But um, the question sort of in, you know, in the roles that I've managed of salespeople, I always found that companies underestimate how much time selling it takes mm-hmm. so if you think about you want your sales rep to do a million dollars and you've planned your business and your budget around that and that is going to take someone who's new you know x number of calls x number of meetings a week or whatever and realistically there's not enough time there's actually your time is the only resource you really have mm-hmm. you know so as far as thinking about planning and, and we do this for common skew even mm-hmm. but you know how what is the right tool or of the right measurement to make sure that from a sales rep standpoint, number one, how long does it take to really get a salesperson comfortable to be in a groove? You know, is it two months, six months, you know, does it really take a year? And then thinking about a salesperson's daily activities, um, what do you see as sort of that capacity? Because I feel like everything has to start there Mm -hmm. with how much time it takes to sell and do the sales process which then
1: can give you an idea based
2: on your average order size, what can that person realistically do? Yep. Yeah.
1: That planning piece becomes an awful lot easier when you've got um, successful roles that you can point to and saying, you know, that person is able to write that much business or you know, that person's able to handle this many transactions or that many clients or whatever the case may be. So it becomes a lot easier to say, that's been done before, I know it's possible and therefore someone else can do it and to be able to plug kind of into a model that's more proven. Um, with the way that, from a Right Sleep perspective, the way that we approach development because we're bringing people in at the coordinator level and growing them up through the organization. Once they reach that point, they're being given a book of business to to work on and to grow from there. it's not guessing yet yeah, at that point. It's more a matter of how quickly can they scale that piece of business to, to make it bigger, and how many more leads are we going to feed them along the way to be able to help kind of meet those goals. But it just it comes down to that reverse engineering piece in terms of the funnel. So how many meetings does it take to get you know that that foot in the door? How long is it going to take to build that business? And um, you know one of the things that we spend a lot of time and this speaks to the point about specialization that I mentioned is that you know we do a lot of business in the tech and startup space. So that generates a huge amount of word of mouth because people see. Like oh you know right sleeve is the go-to kind of in that space and they and so that you, that person is being fed leads kind of as a result of the fact that there's just referrals kind of coming in the door exactly right. then having to you know we we don't do cold calling it's just not kind of the way we, we build the business so it, um, it a lot of it comes down to kind of what what other opportunities are you providing them with in terms of to make them successful in their role right. two minutes left so I'm not
0: I'm com- not sure how comfortable you'd be sharing but uh, you mentioned that you've had some success on the supplier side negotiating extended terms when the orders are larger. I'm just wondering if you can provide any more detail um, into that.
1: Yeah, I think um, especially with larger overseas orders, as much as you can kind of lay out a schedule working in partnership with your supplier, and you have to be, and this is, I mean, Mark is the master of this in terms of being able to lay out win-win scenarios. So, um, you know, in a lot of cases, they're going to say 50% up front and, and the balance kind of when it, it, when it leaves the port. And at that point, that makes a long period of time before you're then being able to invoice that customer and get the rest out the door. So again, that matching piece up front becomes critical in terms of getting the deposit from your customer. Um, but being able to negotiate saying, okay, you know, let's do 30% up front and you know, 30% more when it leaves the dock and the 40% you know, 30 days later, that a lot of times like suppliers are willing to work with you if ultimately you're giving them a good opportunity, it's a it's a good order, and um, you're laying out kind of, you know, we will pay you at exactly that point in time when that date hits, um, but being able to kind of negotiate that. We also have with, um, uh, you know, some apparel manufacturers, we've been able to do 120 days. Like that makes a huge difference when you've got, it has to go to a screen printer and it's got to then go out from there. So, you know, any opportunity um, there... That's for, I mean, with one particular supplier that we work with, that's for every order. Um, but the, the, and that is a bit of a holdover from those early days when we were doing massive volume in, in apparel uh, or a single order is massive volume. Um, but I think that um, a lot of it also comes down to is that if you're gonna negotiate those terms, you also have to pay on time. And that becomes a respect thing in terms of how it is that you manage those supplier relationships. So the, um, that's where the cash flow piece becomes absolutely critical. Yeah, up here. Have you faced a situation where you have to control the growth, the scaling where it's going too fast? Absolutely. I mean, that, that piece around um, that where the bottlenecks happen, I mean, we ended up with, uh, you know, speaking of kind of payments and all of that, we went through a period of time where we were paying our suppliers late because we just couldn't post the bills and get the stuff out the door fast enough. We just didn't have enough bandwidth in that role. So we ultimately hired a dedicated payables person just for that reason. So we want to make that be a, a point of, um, something that's really important to us to pay our suppliers on time. So, the um, yeah, absolutely, and that's where I mean we weren't doing enough of this stuff at that point in time in terms of laying out kind of where those bottlenecks were and, and being able to hire early enough along and and to reach the, to avoid that issue. We are out of time. More than happy to continue this conversation kind of over the next uh, you know, twenty four hours and beyond. But thanks for all your attention. <laughs>
0: Thanks so much for tuning into this episode of SkewCast. Be sure to keep up with our latest content by subscribing to SkewCast on iTunes or to our blog at community.commonskew.com. Until next time, friends, thanks so much for listening.